Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Today, we have a special episode around the one-year anniversary of the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. This panel conversation is generously hosted by American Purpose and co-hosted by the Eastern Front podcast. Three U.S. military figures that played crucial roles in the support of Ukraine are joining us today to discuss Western strategy in support of Ukraine and what to expect in the months to come. We also have the three arms of the armed forces represented, retired General Philip Breedlove, Admiral James Fogo, and General Ben Hodges are joining us today. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. I'm Jeff Gedman with American Purpose. This is co-hosted with AEI's podcast, Eastern Front. Tizal Donnelly is with us, Dalibor Rohaj is with us, and of course, Yulia Shosha, all three co-hosts. And I think in due course, we'll hear in the question round from you, Tizal, and you, Dalibor. What a tremendous group with General Hodges and Admiral Fogo and General Breedloff joining and Yulia Shosha of the Eastern Front podcast of AEI and of Georgetown University and George Washington University. Yulia, you initiated this program, you put it together, and you're the moderator today. So the floor is yours. Yulia, over to you. Thank you, Jeff. Um, thanks to you and to American Purpose for hosting us. Um, and uh, of course, a big thank you to our panelists um, today um, for agreeing to talk to um, on this panel. Um, I know they are friends, but I haven't seen them. And this is how um, we had the idea in the first place. I haven't seen them on the same um, platform talking about um, this war. And uh, and so I'm thrilled um, that we get to to host them today. Uh, I'm going to keep uh, my remarks and my questions very brief because I want to make this as interactive as possible and give as many Um, participants the chance, thank you for joining us, to um, weigh in with their questions and um, brief comments in the second half um, of this hour. And um, just to frame um, the conversation today, um, we are due to talk about the first year um, of the full-scale Russian invasion on Ukraine and about what um, we should be expecting from the next year or so. But before we get into the bits and pieces, the um, um, the details of the last year. And again, we have here um, what one obviously one of the ideas behind this panel was to have air, navy, and um and land forces um joining together to um uh to assess the situation. And um all three, um Admiral Fogo, General Breedlove, and General Hodges have been, as you all know, working closely um on Ukraine with Ukraine for the last few years. Before we get into the bits and pieces of the last year, I want to start this conversation taking a few steps back, if I may, with you, Admiral Foco, over the last few years. And to start from the maritime perspective, to ask you how we got here. How did we, from the maritime perspective, 
allow forward naval presence um, in the Black Sea to deteriorate to the point that Russia has not just um, illegally annexed and dom- illegally annexed Crimea and dominated the Black Sea, transforming it in the famous words of President Erdogan into a Russian lake um, or almost a Russian lake. But it has also used the Black Sea for years as power projection further south um, into Syria. Now, over the last year, that has been um, reversing in a trend with Russia reallocating some of its forces from Syria back into um, into the Ukraine battlefield. But from the Western perspective and from your perspective, Admiral Fogo, how did we get here from the point of view of maritime security? Thank you very much, Yulia. Thank you for the invitation to participate in uh, American Purposes. Jeff, uh, thanks for a great introduction. And also uh, with your staff, Carolyn Stewart, for doing a super job with uh, connectivity today. So, Yulia, you ask a tough question. I mean, this uh, has been portrayed as primarily a land campaign since the kickoff on 24 February. Uh, in three days, it'll be an anniversary. And boy, what a fi- what a final week here uh, before that anniversary with the president's visit to uh, Ukraine, to Kiev, and now in Warsaw, and the vice president to Munich Security Conference. But I've written extensively and spoken extensively about how we got here with uh, pretty much no NATO presence, no U.S. presence in the Black Sea. And uh, that's extremely disturbing to me as a naval officer. We've seen good things happen on the ground, and we've seen some incremental advances on the ground. I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But if you go back to uh, 2007, to the Munich Security Conference, when President Putin uh, spoke about the encirclement of Russia, frankly, in my opinion, paranoia, because the alliance does not offensively take other people's territory the way Russia is trying to do in Ukraine, we defend. Uh, the territory and the contiguous borders of our allies and partners. And so that kind of started it off. And then the Russians did a soft pullout and a full pullout of the Conventional Forces Europe Treaty, which is transparency for exercises. You never know when 300,000 troops on your border who claim to be doing an exercise are going to invade. And that happened last 24 uh, February and 22. And then the invasion of Georgia. And everybody was really concerned about that. So concerned that uh, the U.S. and NATO pushed for a reset with Russia. The famous picture of Hillary Clinton and Sergei Lavrov, who outlasted probably five or six sex states here in this country. That didn't last for long. But I'll tell you, during the time, we were doing a Russia work plan with Russia, 365 days a year. Personnel exchanges, band exchanges, you know, marching in parades, work colleges, and also uh, chaplain corps, if you can imagine. The Russians were part of Baltops up until 2013. Now, I commanded in 15 and 16, and they were on the other side of the iron at that time because they'd gone to the dark side after um, the invasion of Crimea. And so then they started to focus on the Black Sea. They built the Kerch Bridge in 2016 with the purpose of strangulating commercial traffic into Mariupol and other ports and dominating in the Sea of Azov. At the time, I said, hey, that's a protocol that they could export to the Black Sea, and they certainly did. To push back against that, uh, we had the Ukrainian CNO in my headquarters in Naples at the end of 2018. He announced uh, his intention to put the Mosquito fleet to sea. You remember the incident that took place in 2019 when those three ships tried to pass through the Kerch Bridge, were hit by uh, an FSB patrol craft, fired upon, rammed. Uh, holes in the hall, 27 sailors put in a prison in Moscow, uh, much uh, to the chagrin of the West and also a violation of the Geneva Convention. They came back about two years later on a prisoner exchange, but completely unsat. 
So one of my jobs after 2014 was help rearm the uh, Ukrainian Navy. They lost 85% of it in Sevastopol when the Russians took uh, Crimea. And they had one ship, Hamet Sagadashny, which a few months ago, President Zelensky ordered scuttled in the Mykolaiv shipyard. He didn't want to fall in the hands of the Russians. Uh, we were transferring excess defense articles, island-class Coast Guard cutters to Ukraine. They were delivered by my chief of staff to Odessa. The problem was that these ships uh, had their weaponry stripped. Uh, there was no deck on, on the forward deck. It was just a metal plate. And the uh, Ukraines had the responsibility of buying their own weapon systems. If you think about it, we should have been arming Ukraine in 2014 after the illegal annexation of Crimea. And we did. That was a mistake. We're catching up for it now. I believe in deterrence, not a punishment strategy. And I think we got locked into a punishment strategy. We we're doing a pretty good job. I mean, you saw the president uh, in his remarks, $100 billion in aid to Ukraine, but it could have come sooner in 2014, hence the boiling frog scenario. Now, what do we do about it? We've got to get back in and establish a presence in the Black Sea. We had three U.S. commissioned ships in the Black Sea in December 2021, the command ship of Sixth Fleet, my favorite ship in the Navy, USS Mount Whitney, and two Burke-class destroyers, Porter and USS Burke. We pulled them out in December of 21 so as not to exacerbate the Russians and cause an invasion. Well, guess what? They did anyway. So my thesis is we never should have left. We need a strategy for the Black Sea. We've got to reestablish presence. I think I've got some suggestions for how to do that. And uh, we can talk about that later in the podcast and also talk about some of the interesting things that are happening here in Washington with the Shaheen Romney, which purposefully addresses Black Sea strategy. So I'll stop there and back to you and my shipmate, General Hodges. Let me follow up on that. Um, as a matter of fact, as Biden is speaking in Warsaw, timely, he seemed to have coordinated his schedule with ours. Um, um, Senator Shaheen is um, speaking in um, Romania about um, exactly that strategy. But before we get to that, let me ask you, how do we fix this in terms of military maritime presence in the Black Sea. We know that, and a lot of the conversations are about Turkey, um, Turkey invoking Montreux, um, the Montreux Convention interpreting it in a certain way. But we also know that if we're looking over the last few years, in the very tight limits that um, the Turks are allowing as foreign presence, um, the United States and um, other um, uh, NATO allies have not been taking advantage of the limited presence that they have um, in terms of days, hours, that they can be present in the Black Sea. Um, so how do we go about, in, in your understanding, how do we go about Turkey and, and what should we be thinking about investing in to be able to allow more of a military presence of the United States, particularly in the Black Sea region as deterrence? Yulia, great question. And if you look at what's happened in the Army, I'm sure Ben will talk about this. You know, we started off the defense of Ukraine with the shipment of things like javelins, stingers. Then we had 155 uh, millimeter artillery shells of all different varieties and all different nations and artillery, and then HIMARS, which turned to be a, uh, you know, a turning point in the campaign, a very lethal and a very accurate weapon that was used inside the borders of Ukraine to push the Russians back, and it worked. So if you take that uh, approach of incrementalism, uh, we don't have to go charging back into the Black Sea because we lack presence there now, like the British did in the Dardanelles in World War I, the precursor to 
uh, Gallipoli, as the Commonwealth would say, or Chanakali, as the Turks would say. Uh, my suggestion is that we do things uh, deliberately. So I've I've talked with uh, Romanians about this, and I've talked with Americans and uh, NATO personnel about this. You know, I think we have to start with uh, what are the problems there? The problem is no presence. Uh, certainly the Romanians and Bulgarians are NATO nations, but I think they struggle with going out to sea and facing up against uh, the Russian Black Sea fleet uh, because their respective fleets are older and uh, require uh, readiness, maintenance, and modernization. Mines are a problem. Let's focus on that. let us I don't think anybody can argue that mines are a, a universal threat to everybody, including the Russians. So why wouldn't we try to get back in there with the Standing NATO Mine Countermeasures Group, SNMCG, and do some mine sweeping? You know, I talked to the Romanian CNO a couple of months ago, Mihail Panet. He was in uh, Norfolk. I was there for a conference. He told me the story about 300 ships off the coast of Constanta. They're sitting there waiting for transit passage through the Bosphorus as we work out this deal on uh, Russia's hunger blockade in Istanbul. Uh, somebody spotted a mine in the vicinity of those ships. That was dangerous to civilian mariners. So he dispatched one of his Romanian minesweepers. It went out. Uh, by the time it got there, weather and uh, darkness had fallen. They hit the mine, blew the ship up. Thankfully, nobody killed. Made it back into port, but that ship is out of commission. And they've had another incident like that. So my question to both uh, Admiral Panet and to General Petrescu, who was here in my center in this headquarters a few months ago, is, are you getting any help from NATO? And the answer was, no, not really. Getting any unmanned assistance, because we have all these tools that I've seen in ball tops that you can throw over the side of a rigid hold inflatable boat that can do mine hunting and uh, mine countermeasures. And the answer was, again, no. So I think start incrementally, work with the Turks, get back in there. And I can't imagine that the Russians would have a problem with what is uh, nothing other than a humanitarian mission to sweep mines and get them out of the... Uh, uh, the sea lanes so that ships can pass uh, without danger of actually being hit. That would be a way to start it and then move up into forward naval presence along the lines of what we had before the war began on February 24th, 2022. Thank you, Admiral Fogo. And let me bridge this um, and turn to um, General Hodges and ask you about resources, both on the NATO side and um, and on the Ukrainian side. Um, you've been training, overseeing the training for years um, of um, Ukraine after 2014. Um, you're looking closely um, from Germany, just a few hundred kilometers away from, from the, um, the battlefield. Um, you're looking closely at how this war has been progressing and overall we basically see with, you know, I don't, I, I'm not even counting anymore. We're at the 11th, 12th package of um, military aid from the United States um, to Ukraine that then is being tagged along by other allies. But Ukraine is still asking for more. They've been asking for more for a long time. And it seems um, that we are trickling in without really feeding what we're trickling in into a strategy of winning. So can you talk to us about that? The incremental approach of the administration and of our other allies is obviously too slow. I mean, there's a lot that's been provided, but the quantity actually means nothing. What 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 is most important is what are the capabilities that Ukraine needs? Uh, what is the effect that we need to achieve? So 
if you give a million rounds of artillery ammunition, but the requirement was for two million, then a million is not so good. So um, I think what we have got to do is, is change the narrative around to um, what, what is their end state? And this is still, I, you know, I was at Munich Security Conference this past weekend, uh, lots of intense, rich discussions, probably one of the best Munich security conferences I've ever attended. But still, I left there wondering what is our end state? You know, when the, when the vice president says, we're, we will stick, we're in it for as long as it takes without saying what it is. And um, so until the administration can articulate what our strategic objective is, then we will forever be wrestling around with, you know, M1 tanks or F-16s or ATACMs, you know, and focusing on systems instead of capabilities that lead to victory. Now, I happen to believe that Ukraine can and should win this war this year, and specifically uh, Crimea, which is the decisive part of this war, not Donbass, Crimea could be liberated by the end of this summer. If, and this is a gigantic if, if we, the West, led by the United States, Germany, France, and UK, decided that we wanted Ukraine to win this year. I mean, we're the only ones holding it up, not the Russians. It's us. Um, but I think that, honestly, I think in a way we're almost scared of, of Ukraine winning, of defeat, totally defeating Russia. And obviously there are other people that will have a different view or that also are concerned about this uh, for, for a variety of reasons. But if we said we want Ukraine to win this year, and the key is the liberation of Crimea, which could happen by the end of the summer, then what do you need to do that? You need long-range precision weapons that could isolate the Crimean Peninsula by making sure the Russians never rebuild the Kerch Bridge and that uh, the so-called land bridge that connects Crimea through Melitopol, Mariupol, back to Rostov, that it is severed, starting with long-range precision weapons, and then this uh, armored, uh, armored force that the Ukrainians are building that I anticipate will launch somewhere around June. Once that all happens, then, then this could happen very fast. But if we're not, if we're not committed to winning, and, and despite all the incredible good things our administration has done, they still can't bring themselves to say, we want Ukraine to win, then we're going to continue to be incremental in our approach. Now, what's also missing, because we have been incremental and we haven't made the commitment to win, um, there's a lot of hand-wringing going on about how much ammunition is being consumed. Uh, and there's talk about, you know, how do we help Ukrainians not shoot so much ammunition, which is kind of bizarre since they're the ones that are fighting for their survival. Um, and instead, I haven't seen too many checks being written to actually increase, increase production. There's lots of talk about the need for our defense industry to be able to do more but these are not charities. I mean, the Department of Defense has to write a check to all whoever it is so that they can actually, with a contract, expand their, uh, you know, get more employees so that they can go more shifts and also so that they can, those companies can pay their suppliers for the things that are needed to make more uh, rock, Gimler's rockets or uh, artillery ammunition or Javelin or all the different things that are needed. So this we don't have the right sense of urgency, I would say. Now, Russia's much ballyhooed uh, offensive 
uh, that we've been hearing all about that was going to start. I think actually it has already started uh, with a bit of a whimper. Uh, all it seems that they can actually do is increase the number of poorly led, poorly trained, poorly equipped conscripts, push them into the meat grinder that already exists along a broad front. And I honestly uh, don't see them being able to sustain this beyond uh, April or probably May. So in other words, I think their offensive culminates by May. And, you know, from Clausewitz, the culmination point is when the attacker loses the impetus due to uh, casualties or logistics or lost will or increasing strength of the defender. And I think that's what we're going to be seeing around May. And I think the Ukrainian general staff sees that. They see that they're able to hold back Russian forces around Bakhmut for months, months. And the Ukrainians are using primarily territorial defense force, National Guard forces, uh, not their first line armored formations, because I think they're saving these armored formations, training, building them up, preparing them for when it's time to launch uh, a counterstrike. Again, I think in June in a southeasterly direction to begin the isolation of Crimea. So this is, uh, and this would be my last point that the um, the Ukrainian general staff has shown great discipline, uh, operational security. Uh, we know more about the Russians than we do about what the Ukrainians are doing, uh, which is as it should be. And um, I think that they have nerves of steel to resist the temptation to push every new thing into this terrible fight that's happening around Bakhmut, but but they recognize the need to use their forces around Bakhmut in what we would call economy of force so that they can build up real capability for the main effort, which will come later in a southeasterly direction, probably towards uh, between Melitopol, Mariupol, and that area, isolate Crimea, and then bring up the precision capability uh, necessary to make the Crimean Peninsula uninhabitable, untenable. That's That will be the key. Thank you, um, General Hodges. I haven't mentioned because we were hoping that he can join us through the process. Um, General Breedlove has been um, held up um, by um, a parallel conflict last minute. So we're still waiting on him to join. Um, and while we do that, let me ask you, General um, Hodges, um, a quick follow-up question, and then perhaps I can go back to Admiral Fogo. Let me paint the other picture. Um, you've spoken very eloquently to uh, uh, to the fact that with a clear vision and clear aims, we can finish this sooner rather than later. But we are now into one year, partially also because of hesitation, partially political hesitation, and partially, of course, strategic calculations, but partially also what you spoke to, and that is which is coming in an unclear manner through media all the time, that we have shortcomings when it comes to ammunition. It was Soviet ammunition um, that the Ukrainians needed, including for the tanks. Hence, we moved to the Cold War time, Western um, capabilities. We, have, we haven't increased production um, as much as we would have needed to in um, both the United States and in Germany. Um, and we've seen the foreign minister um, of Germany 
Germany at the Munich Security Conference, meeting um, or bringing together the um, bigger producers from the German market um, with the Ukrainians trying to speed that process up. So is it a matter of just political will? Or is it also a matter of resources? Because we keep thinking um, or we keep saying that time is actually on Putin's side because we are dragging this out and he's waiting for us to get tired um, to abandon Ukraine and to move on to the next um, topic, the next hot conflict. So how do you assess the risks if we keep the same pace as we have through the last year into the next year, where are we then in one year? Do the Ukrainians have any chance then to to, um, destroy the land bridge, to take back Crimea, or will we be with uh, enormous human losses in uh, one year where we are now? Julia, that was about 12 questions uh, in one sentence. Look, uh, we need to get a sense of urgency. It's up to us to get this done this year. And for whatever reason, I I think part of it, too many people in the administration and in other countries are concerned about a nuclear escalation that's not going to happen. We have been deterring ourselves for a year. There were a year ago, people were wringing their hands that if we gave Stinger to the Ukrainians and they shot down a Russian helicopter with an American made Stinger, the Russians would escalate. And so we do this, we climb the stairs every month, there's something new, and the Russians can't do anything about it. Of course, they have thousands of nuclear weapons. And of course, they don't care how many innocent people are killed. But I think that they uh, believe President Biden when he said catastrophic consequences if they use a nuclear weapon. And there's no battlefield advantage for them. They have strategic nuclear weapons. And of course, today, President Putin announced that they're suspending their participation to start. Uh, What a a shocking uh, announcement this is. Um, The the fact is they're not going to use a strategic weapon against the United States. That's what those are designed for. So they have tactical nuclear weapons. Tactical nuclear weapons were invented during the Cold War to blow a gap in NATO defenses. And then they had forces that were uh, trained and properly equipped mobile forces that could operate in a contaminated environment, a radioactive environment, to exploit that gap that they blew in our defenses. Those forces don't exist anymore. There is no mobile force prepared to operate in a radioactive environment to exploit a tactical nuclear weapon. So there's zero positive upside for them. No advantage. Their nuclear weapons only work if they don't use them. As soon as they use them, then it's all over. And I think they know that. And that's why we have got to stop um, deterring ourselves and limiting what we're doing and get serious about this. 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan, I never heard any president say we're going to win. And, and you see how this turned out. So we have got to we have got to get clarity on the objective, and then you'll get the necessary speed and sense of urgency. Thank you, General Hodges. Turning to you, General Rutloff, I'm glad that you um, you could join us and you heard the last part of our um, conversation about war aims. And I know um, you feel very strongly about some of these things. So let me just give you the floor before we open up for questions. I see they're already piling in. Um, let me just give you the floor and ask you, 
where are we in terms of war aims in your understanding? I know you've been briefing the administration throughout um, the past year on exactly that. And also, um, if you can give us just a very brief assessment um, from the perspective, because you're completing the picture of air power, um, where are we on that? Right now, President Biden is speaking in Warsaw um, as we're speaking, while the Ukrainian refugees and uh, in solidarity, the Poles are asking for F-16s for Ukraine in public places. So, General Breedlove, the floor is yours. Well, first, let me profusely apologize for being late. And let me say that I couldn't be more happy to be on this panel. All the faces, uh, those asking the questions are heroes of mine, and and particularly uh, serving with uh, Ben and Jamie in the past. I just really appreciate being in such good company. Let me pile on something that Ben just said, and you all were talking about as I joined. And yes, Putin is beginning to have some small, very small incremental gains in some parts of the battlefield, but let's just look at the big picture. He suffered two strategic defeats in the North. He's on the verge of an operational defeat, in my mind, down in the South. And it's clear to me that in the grand scheme of things, Mr. Putin's army and his military is failing him. But what is working for him? His war of words, his war of intimidation, his ability to deter the West is working extremely good. And I think this is what Ben was talking to at the end. We are withholding things in the West, and we are slow leaking things to Ukraine in the West because we are deterred. And uh, Mr. Putin understands this. Every time he gives a speech, every time one of his major uh, leaders give a speech, there's always a nuclear component. He wants to keep the West worried about nukes. On a little less frequent basis, but still a pretty frequent basis, his second line of deterrence is to continue to threaten Armageddon and a war, and Western soldiers, particularly American soldiers, are going to die on this battlefield if it keeps going forward. So I think along the lines of what Ben was saying, and he may or may not agree with me, I think that Mr. Putin understands that this, this intimidation and getting at the center of gravity in America, meaning the political division and the divisiveness on things like this, this is what Mr. Putin is continuing to put the pressure on. And we, we, in my opinion, in the West need to be big enough to recognize this in the context of the factual sort of things been discussed. And I think we need to move out, which brings me to my second um, point. And I've probably spoken 11 times in the last seven days. I've just come back from the road. And people ask me, what's the most important thing we need to give Ukraine? And I surprise them all because I think the most important thing we need to give Ukraine right now is a clear policy. If we simply said that we're going to support them to win, we keep saying this, we're going to be with them for as long as it takes. Well, the immediate follow-on question is, for as long as it takes to do what? How do we measure what we need to give them if we don't have a sight picture for where we need to end up? And right now, I think that we have taken the path of ambiguity here 
to try to facilitate an earlier trip to the negotiating table. And I find that very disappointing. I think the most important thing that we could give Ukraine right now has nothing to do with metal or tritinol. It has everything to do with America saying, we're going to support Ukraine to regain all its territorial integrity. Remember the Budapest Memorandum, we pledged to keep their sovereignty and to protect their territorial integrity. Let's just say that we're going to remain and give them what we promised them in the Budapest Memorandum. I know it wasn't a treaty. I I remember all the discussions about why we sort of wrote that that agreement in a, in in my words, Weasley word kind of way. But we can still stand to our promise about Uh, their integrity and their sovereignty. How can you be a sovereign nation if Russia owns 24 to 25% of your countryside, your two biggest ports, and can hold your third biggest port under fire from Crimea? Uh, And then, uh, uh, sorry, I'm running off at the mouth, but just to talk a few minutes about the air. What worries me first and foremost about the air campaign in Ukraine is has more to do with America than anywhere else. We're learning some very bad lessons. There are people out there saying that air power is no longer important. Look, Russia's been unable to establish air power in Ukraine. And Ukraine, a fabulous job done with a tiny, old, far less capable air force, But air power has not yet had an effect on this battlefield. Drones and long-range strike weapons fired from airplanes and things, yes, they're having an effect. But the traditional ability to gain and maintain air superiority over the battlefield to then empower air power to eliminate the lines on the battlefield, which we see growing all the time now, this linear warfare air power, and, oh, by the way, maneuver, armored maneuver, eliminate these lines. And we are yet to give Ukraine the capability to change the shape of the battlefield by eliminating lines. And so uh, I think I'll get off the stage with that. Again, I'm sorry for having arrived late, and I really look forward to the questions. Thank you, um, General Breedlove. Um, even though you haven't heard um, the first part, I believe there's perfect sync here <laughs> between the three arms of the armed forces. Taking the moderator's prerogative, um, and because this is co-hosted by um, our podcast, to give give the floor first to Giselle and Dadebor um, if they have questions for either of our panelists. Giselle? I don't have so much of a question, although I really appreciated the the presentation. I think I'd, I'd be interested at, at some juncture from hearing from Admiral Fogo about how to put together a sufficient Ukrainian Navy to help control the Black Sea. It seems to me that we have some LCS that we're trying to ditch that could be ideal for, you know, assuming that the ships themselves work, uh, but also... Europe is crawling with corvettes and things like that that could be quite useful. But aside from that technical question, here's something sort of for all three of our guests. I wonder if it's worth redefining what the end state is. Victory for Ukraine, Ukraine whole and free, that is the near-term goal, absolutely. 
but it seems to me that there's a longer term goal that never gets spoken about. And that's what to do after that, because this is really a, seems to me a piece of a larger effort towards uh, the future containment uh, and deterrence uh, of Russian aggression. And I wonder too, just politically, whether it wouldn't be better to reason backward from that kind of, uh, you know, 1947 type vision of what the project is uh, that would tell us that the faster we get to a stable uh, line of deterrence or whatever you want to call it, you know, might uh, help get past this incrementalism that all three of you have described. Admiral Fogo, can we turn to you first? You sort of had two already questions piled up. All right. <clears throat> Thank you, Giselle. On the question of what can we do for the Ukrainian Navy? So prior to the uh, conflict, we were trying to rearm and rebuild the Ukrainian Navy. Again, uh, a little too little and too late. And uh, we should have provided them with armed warships and capable warships immediately uh, after 2014, the illegal annexation of Crimea. I don't think anybody would have blamed us or the West for that, NATO or the United States. And that would have given Ukraine a better fighting chance in the seas uh, contiguous with their own territory uh, to push the Russians back. We haven't done that. And there's now, um, I hate to say it, but uh, virtual presence equals virtual absence in the Black Sea. Uh, Yulia started off with uh, reference to a comment <clears throat> the Turks had made about now uh, the Black Sea is a Russian lake. We've got to reverse that. We can't allow the seeding of international uh, waters uh, to solely one nation. One of the ways to start that incrementally in consort with uh, uh, my first comments when I briefed is to beef up the anti-access area denial capabilities that not only Ukraine have, but also Bulgaria, uh, Romania, and Georgia, as well as the Turks. Uh, we've seen success on the part of the Ukrainians with two air-breathing Neptune-class cruise missiles. They were upgraded from an old Russian design. They sank the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, the Moskva. And the Russians were stunned by that. Frankly, so was the rest of the world. And uh, that, technically speaking, shouldn't have happened because that ship had every defensive capability. So if we can link up coastal defense radars with coastal defense cruise missiles, uh, Neptune or the naval strike missile, um, you know, which has originated in, in Norway and proven very effective, the Poles have them, and produce unmanned systems that all have one common network for one common operating picture, unmanned surface, unmanned subsurface, and uh, unmanned uh, aerial vehicles. You've seen some strikes. General Breedlove mentioned drones in uh, Sevastopol and the naval base there. You've seen uh, surface vessels and video online uh, attacking the Black Sea Fleet. And as a result, the Black Sea Fleet has moved some of its assets from Sevastopol, its high-value units, to Novorossiysk. The Russians still have six kilo-class submarines in the Black Sea. One Ukrainian minister just this past weekend suggested that a single German U-212 submarine could turn the tide of the war. Uh, that's true as long as it's crewed with the right people. And it takes a long time to train somebody how to operate a submarine. I don't see that that's viable. And non-riparian states are not allowed to bring submarines or aircraft carriers into the Black Sea under Montreux. And that would be a political quagmire that we just couldn't get through. So beefing up A2AD, making sure that everybody's connected along the entire coast, with the exception of Russia, in the Black Sea, 
and pushing the Russians further back, uh, Novorossiysk, Sea of Azov, establishing a domain which is safe for transit. And then you always use unmanned systems before you put manned systems in. That's when the minesweepers, that's when the rest of NATO and the NATO uh, standing maritime groups, not the mine countermeasures group, but the combat capability. I mean, General Breedlove will tell you, he never saw 29, 30 ships signed up for SNMG during his time as SAC here, neither did I. And I was 40 years in the service. Uh, we've got more assets now than we've ever had before. Time to use them, time to get back in there. Thanks for your question. Thank you. Um, I'll uh, ask uh, General Breedlove and General Hodges to keep the second um, question from Giselle about the aims beyond the war um, in their um, in the back of their minds and turn um, quickly to Dalibor um, to add his question. Yulia, thank you. And thank you uh, all for, for, for a wonderful panel um, thus far. I, I want to ask a question about one of the wild cards or black swans in this war, depending on what your favorite metaphor is, um, namely a stronger, renewed Chinese involvement in the conflict. Obviously, China has been crucial in helping Russia get around the sanctions and get its oil and gas out of the country. Uh, but there have been these rumors about a more sort of explicit, more direct Chinese military assistance to Russia. And I wonder if any of you have a sense of how much of a risk that would represent in the in the war going forward. If you have any thoughts about Chinese military industrial base, about Chinese equipment and its quality and how much of a sort of difference this, this could make in the conflict, quite aside from the sort of geopolitical and, and sort of political implications of, 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 of such a move by Beijing. Thank you. General Breedlove, General Hodges, will, um, would you like to address one of these questions? Um, may I jump on the last one, and then uh, Ben will probably knock it out of the park with after, if not, I have a thought. So, so uh, Dalibor, this is a great question, and it's, of course, the question of the day because our Secretary of State has acknowledged that, that they are aware that this may be happening. I believe it is already has been happening personally, but to a limited degree, so now it's coming to the fore in policy discussions. To be academically honest, we have to be concerned about this. If the industrial capacity of China begins to support Russia, this is going to be a problem. But may I now make a thought that is not often considered. You can pile stuff on top of bad leadership, bad execution, and bad skills and yes, the mass will have some ability, but I think the real limits now of the Russian military is their soldiers and the leaders of their soldiers and the strategic leaders of the leaders of their soldiers. They have demonstrated a lack of capability and proficiency on the battlefield that is quite demonstrative. And, uh, you know, you, you, they're throwing these human waves, of course, right now. And if you're watching uh, any of the things on Twitter, the, the actual pictures of how they're doing this, it, it, uh, I'm sure it makes Ben's few hairs on his head stand straight up. The, these are not the way disciplined militaries employ. And what we know is that you can't build a leader overnight. So even if they have huge mobilizations, 
they're missing those junior officers. Remember, they don't have an NCO core like we have an NCO core. And, and this sort of density of ability to lead, think, and fight independently is not something that Russia is demonstrating on the battlefield. So it's a long answer to say, I am concerned. And clearly, if China brings industrial mass to the problem, uh, that's going to be a problem for Ukraine. But I still want us to have a sober view of what Russia can do because they now have structural problems in their ability to effectively act as a unit on the battlefield. Thanks for asking the question. Secure General Cavoli said precision defeats mass and what if you have enough time. And of course, what he's talking about, the only advantage that Russia has is mass infantry, as General Breedlove just described. And for mass infantry to be successful, even this poorly trained, uh, especially this poorly trained, poorly led and poorly equipped mass infantry we're seeing now, they have to have mass artillery. Mass artillery requires headquarters to direct the, the fire ammunition, which we will find in piles along roads, and then transportation or transportation network to get it there. Um, and so, of course, the Ukrainians were using the first iteration of HIMARS to target all three of those things to great effect, but that's limited to 90 kilometers. So the Russians moved out beyond the 90 kilometers. So the priority for capability that they need, the Ukrainians, is precision that can reach further to hit headquarters, ammunition, and transportation. That's how you neutralize the only advantage that Russia has. I think that we're going to see the collapse of the Russian uh, forces, you know, before the end of this summer. But what what uh, Clausewitz called the culminating point, due to losses, due to lack of will, uh, due to resources, they're struggling with uh, their own ammunition problems right now. They're having to import drones from Iran. Russia. I mean, what does that tell you about the state of, of, of Russia's economy and their, and their defense industry right now? Uh, I take great hope from the fact that you've got all the Russian warlords hate each other, and they are, there is so much animosity between Shoigu, Prigozhin, Kadyrov. You don't see too many videos of dead Chechens. He's keeping them out of the fight, um, the Ukrainians call them the TikTok army because there's a lot of videos of them on parade, but they don't actually do anything. And so I think Kadyrov is waiting for opportunity either for a third Chechen war, or maybe he sees himself as the uh, uh, the savior. Prigozhin constantly whining, complaining about not getting enough support from the general staff. Of course he's not, because he doesn't take orders from them. And actually, I think many of them would rather see him fail than see Russia succeed. And so because of this incoherent command structure, after nine years, they still have not figured out how to organize what we almost take for granted, a coherent joint integrated command structure like General Breedlove used to lead. Um, And therefore, they also don't have a coherent plan. So this makes Ukraine's problem more manageable. Thank you. Thank you um, to all the three panelists um, for joining us today. Try to keep this as tight of a ship as I could. Thank you. And thank you, Julia, for saying that you ran this ship uh, as a tight ship, especially with my Army and Air Force uh, colleagues. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Thank you so much, everyone. How hard can it be? (laughs) 
This only gets better now. <laughs> From Yulia Zhoja, Dalibor Rohaj, and Giselle Donna Lee, thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, and thank you to our panelists and for American Purpose for hosting this um, special edition episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing rating, and reviewing us. To stay up to date with the Eastern Front, please consider giving us a follow on Twitter at Eastern Front Pod in one word and sign up for our newsletter through the link included in the show notes. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you and goodbye.